0: Welcome to Mental Healthy, where we share the stories and expertise of professionals working diligently in the field of mental health. I'm your host today, Dr. Kenyon Knapp. I've got a special guest with me today. It's Dr. Lisa Sawson. And before we dive into the content of what we're talking about today, Dr. Sawson, why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself?
1: Well, thank you, Dr. Knapp. I'm really honored to be here and excited to share with listeners. I am the director of the doctoral program in Counselor Ed and Supervision at Liberty University. It is a KCREP-accredited PhD program that's very delightful to direct with wonderful students, emerging leaders in the field. I've also been in practice as counselor and psychologist for 35 years, and I am passionate about bringing people together, especially in group work, to connect, to share the burden of walking on this crazy planet, to discover that they're normal and that they can share in authentic ways that are real and meaningful, and how this fuels people to live well and to live grounded in who they are. I have a research agenda around the intervention I'm going to be talking about today, and I'm excited about that, and I also do research on things like doctoral student persistence and integration of culture and faith and spirituality in clinical interventions and all kinds of fun stuff like that. That's a little bit about me.
0: Well, yeah, it sounds like you've had a varied history and some good experience in the field. So you're speaking from experience, which is great. I know the listeners love to hear from people who've practiced what they're talking about. Well, you've created something that the listeners need to hear about called the Creative Arts Personal Growth Group. I know you have a leader manual as well. Why don't you give the listeners a a feel for what is the Creative Arts Personal Growth Group?
1: Well, it's really been an evolution I started with a family intervention that I published in Journal of Creativity and Mental Health, which is from the Association of Creativity and Counseling, and I'm very involved in that association, and I love it, and it emerged from working with a family who had a traumatized adolescent, and she was traumatized by being bullied. was an exposure treatment. For those of you who are aware of exposure treatment, it's used to help people manage intolerable feelings, and it's an evidence-based treatment, and it's very effective. It emerged from the cognitive behavioral therapy tradition, but a lot of theoretical models actually use exposure treatment, but call it different things. In this treatment, I worked with the family to reconnect the adolescent to her identity. She had dissociative symptoms from being traumatized and to get back on the developmental trajectory without being compromised by this terror. It was really interesting. I used a lot of art with her and it was so effective that I started using it with others, with adults, with couples with young children, I don't know, it just became a sacred thing. And I wrote about it and started to think about how to expand it in light of the things that have been going on in the culture, and especially the cultural and racial aggressions that have happened. And I began to think, how can we bring people together to experience healing? People who are different, people need it to see that others who have different colors, sizes, shapes are beautiful. And when you get with people who are different and you become connected with them, it changes the heart and the soul and there's less fear of others. And so I expanded what was published as the Creative Exposure Intervention to this creative art personal growth group. And I like calling it a personal growth group instead of you know, a therapy group or a counseling group with the purpose of putting primarily bullied or interpersonally traumatized and marginalized people into a safe, inclusive community where together they could recover and it's grown over time so I started running the groups in 2017 and training emerging counselors and it became a manualized succession treatment manualized meaning it is very clearly written how to run the group effectively there's handouts everything is explained, and I ask before I give out the manual, I ask counselors who are interested to be supervised because it's trauma treatment and there's ethical issues related to that. And we began to bring diverse people together to experience the group and have since then, we began to develop different manuals. This last summer, we developed a manual for people suffering with eating disorder symptoms, and ran and did some research on a group this fall. That's a long answer, Dr. Knapp, but that's a little bit about
0: it. It's really interesting. I mean, you're taking a a really classic approach to treatment and expanding it, which is really wonderful the listeners will be happy to know you mentioned the manual and i have it in front of me it's really polished folks <laughs> it's 60 pages and she's got all the handouts and everything is very user-friendly which is really nice because sometimes people get on and talk theory and it's not as operationalized as you've made it here now i'm reading it and i say it's right here in front of me i'm noticing that there's a focus in this growth group on dealing with fear and shame. Why is there a focus on fear and shame when you're dealing with the topics you've mentioned thus far?
1: Well, you know, in my 35 years of practice, which has been really diverse, couples, communities, organizations, and reflecting back on conceptualizing, which means helping people understand what was happening for them. That was basically disorganizing their minds and keeping them from doing what they do so well in life usually. And in some areas, they were stuck, not solving their problems in looking at that with people I realized that it was an emotional regulation issue. And as I explored that more from a neurobiological perspective, in other words, if somebody isn't thinking clearly and solving their problems, which all people do naturally, then if they're not doing what's natural in some areas of their life, in a sense, I started asking myself the question and my counselees the question, what is cutting you off? from your mind? You know, what is happening that in all these other areas of your life, you're functioning so well, but in this relationship or in this work setting or when this person doesn't accept you, you know, why are you breaking down? And I began to research on physiological, neurobiological processes that happen And I got led to the trauma research. And there is a robust literature about what happens in the mind when trauma occurs, particularly interpersonal and even more significant in early attachment relationships. In other words, when trauma occurs with primary caregivers or early on. And what I learned from this research, and there's much what we'll call consilience in this research, and consilience means across the mental health fields, whether it's research in social work, psychiatry, psychology, counseling, there's agreement now that there is a neurobiological where the brain gets dissociated, in a sense, from the body during trauma. And regular thinking is not accessible. Very interesting and very validating for people. And I began to work with people to understand and learn how to monitor triggers for when this breakdown in thinking takes place and modify their mind so that they can think again clearly. And I learned that it is very difficult to get back online, what we'll call it, for the frontal lobe to get back online when it's needed by trauma. And the more research I did and the more I interviewed clients and others, I learned that at the root of this terror, even beyond the terror, is shame, a deep, pervasive feeling of worthlessness and the belief that others view the self as worthless as well. So I considered that this activation of shame was transdiagnostic. So in our field, that refers to within all of the categories of diagnosis, whether we're dealing with anxiety, depression, different severe responses where a person is breaking down and not able to work and love, which are really what being human is about. That underlying this condition is a dissociative type of what I came to call shame terror, which causes the brain and mind to hide. And at a biological level, it shuts down the nervous system actually now this gets a little complex here in terms of biology it activates what's known as the vagal nerve and i'll say this last thing because i think it will help all of you listening understand that this is very serious the vagal nerve is part of the body it's very remarkable it is implanted so that people who are basically in a very torturous situation, for instance, a bear is coming and is just about to pounce. What happens is the vagal nerve activates, shutting the nervous system off completely from the brain. In other words, decapitating the mind from the body and protecting a person from experiencing that kind of pain. And I came to see that at times with the most severe cases of trauma, this was actually happening. And I began to wonder how can we get the vagal nerve detonated, the fight and flight response turned off, and get the person back online so they could reason with their soul in a sense I call people souls, and get back to doing what they want to do, which is to work competently and love deeply. It's another long answer, Dr. Knapp, but it is complex.
0: Well, this is what it's about. We're glad to hear all the nuance that you're getting into here, which is good. And what you're saying makes sense, and I think people can relate to it, maybe not on a severe trauma level, but when you hear people talk about, like, maybe they were in a car accident or something like that, and they sort of tuned out for a while or something like that. It's that dissociation that's maybe on a a more mild level than a more severe trauma. But it's the same mechanism going on that you're saying where the mind sort of separates, you know, a little bit. So the program you've developed here, the Creative Arts Personal Growth Group, it's a system of trying to treat that trauma that you've just described. Can you tell us more about how does this group work in regards to treating that kind of trauma, the fear and the shame that you talk about? How does that work?
1: I'll give a little bit of a background in terms of the evidence-based interventions that are combined, and then I'll talk more specifically about the intervention itself. We call it CAPG for short, and it combines best practices in the field for the treatment of shame and fear There's a lot of research on how to actually effectively treat these emotionally dysregulating emotions. And in this treatment, it helps participants develop tools to regulate these feelings in the context of a safe, diversity-celebrating and inclusive group. And the reason for that is that most of the time, unless we're talking about, for example, what you just used, a car accident, which is very traumatizing for some. Most of the people that we see in our counseling and therapy world have experienced long-term ambient trauma or developmental trauma that occurred interpersonally. And so I began to think, since trauma occurred interpersonally, it may be most impactful to treat it interpersonally. And that, I think, is an important element to have in the back of your minds as I go through what the intervention is. So the interventions and the treatment has a psychoeducation portion and a creative arts-based intervention itself or experience, and each of these almost precept upon precept. In other words, what was taught in the last session, the next session builds from. And these are interventions that are basically from cognitive behavioral therapy, Proven to be effective for trauma, along with mindfulness and self-compassion interventions, which are emerging in the field as very helpful for regulating the mind, and multicultural competencies and strategies that enable group members to explore and express and process the complex thoughts and feelings and experiences experience that they've had. And what's interesting is that what's coming through in the findings is that the arts-based intervention, along with the fact that it takes place in a structured group, are the two most pertinent factors in terms of what's helpful for the people who experience CAPG. And I think that is because the expressive and creative arts are used to help people express what cannot be expressed in words alone. That's a big part of it.
0: The listeners probably would like to hear more about the structure and just getting more of a feel for what kinds of activities you use because it sounds both cognitive and experiential because you're dealing with all these emotions. Mm -hmm. So, Go ahead and tell us a few examples if you could.
1: I sure will. Well, first of all, potential participants meet with the leader for an individual screening. This is vital and clear in the group literature that screening participants for group work is an ethical mandate. We don't want to put traumatized people in danger. And so the purpose of the screening, which is clinical, In other words, it screens for clinical diagnoses and determines if the group is appropriate at this time. A lot of the people who have been in the groups are also in individual counseling so that they can process further what may have happened in the group. Not all, but I require those experiencing more pain and suffering to also be an individual work. So the screening takes place to orient people to the treatment, to make sure they understand it, to consent to it, and that kind of thing. It includes an overview of the entire treatment, so they are completely aware of what is going to happen. And so then each session of CAPG is formatted the same. First, there's kind of open art to help a person in the group, each person individually, to move out from their outside world that they've been running around in and functioning in and move into just connecting with their own self. Once that takes place for a couple of minutes, there's an anchoring activity that relaxes them That's important because we want them to have access to their, basically, if you think about it biologically, again, to their frontal lobes. We want them to feel, if we're working with adults, like their healthy adult core self before we start with the psychoeducation so that they can take it in. Next, we do a kind of round-robin sharing where people share whatever they want to in a couple of sentences and connect with each other and hear each other and have attunement to one another. Research shows that people have more courage when they're connected with caring others. There's a lot of interesting research on this, and it enables people to face things that are harder, even like Finding a mountain, this is found. People have more courage, confidence, and kindness in those situations. So we're kind of trying to activate that and empower people and get them in touch with their normalcy and beauty and strength. After that, there's a brief psychoeducation portion that they have a handout for, and What is important is that we recognize as counselors that people are brilliant. People understand things. They're no different than we are as counselors. They can understand the trauma response. They can understand what is happening in their bodies and minds. And when they do, it's very empowering. Each session of CAPG explains a different aspect, whether it's biological information, psychological information, social and cultural information, spiritual, systemic. The information empowers them to understand that what is happening for them makes sense and is something they can regulate. It also helps them understand that learning to monitor and modify the neural networks of their mind and emotional systems starts like any skill. So if we compare it, which we do in the group, to learning how to play tennis, for instance, the first day of the group, we're picking up a racket, a tennis racket. We're not going to Wimbledon tomorrow. We talk about how hard are we gonna have to work if our goal is to get to Wimbledon. And everybody understands this because as counselors, we have to help our counselees understand that in order to change long-term habits that are now rooted in the biology of the mind and body, they are gonna have to work very hard. They're going to have to work a lot harder than the counselor is working, and so together they begin to gain momentum about the arduous journey ahead. And so, after we do the psychoeducation portion of the group of that week, we answer questions, we talk. Everybody's like, Oh, that makes sense, I never thought of that. No one has really explained how brilliant their mind and body is, that they found ways to cope. Many people who are traumatized find ways to bind the mind together so they can cope. These strategies like eating disorders, compulsive behaviors like compulsive masturbating or looking at pornography or shopping or drinking or any number of the things that the human mind starts to do to not have pain these symptoms are symptoms these behaviors are symptoms they start often as coping mechanisms but they elicit the pleasure center of the brain and dopamine Pours out when people, for example, snort cocaine or orgasm or have extremely intense experiences that shudder the brain out of certain mind states that are painful. So it self-medicates. By the time somebody comes into counseling then, there are two things that need to be treated. The addiction and the underlying developmental and complex trauma that started the addiction. This is very, very important because in a safe environment, people learn that the things they do that have caused them to feel even more shame are often things that other people do too and that as people talk about it and come out of hiding and learn, yeah, that makes sense. We can help you to stop doing that and we can accept you and care for you even though you're doing that. That process is really a sacred one for all of us in the group. So after we do that part, we do the creative arts activity, for example, they might, if we're doing the identity module, so solidifying your core identity rather than your reactive identity. Of course, I could talk about that for a long time. But if we're doing the core identity activity, I might anchor the participants and turn them inward so they can get a sense of their free and childlike self. And what are their values? What do they like to do? What did they do when they were children? What were they interested in? Who do they like to be with? What are their spiritual beliefs? What's ethnically beautiful and lovely to them? And we spend some time coloring about this real core self of them. And maybe some people write a poem or write a song or someone gets up and dances, it's a very crazy time. No one has ever really gotten up and danced, but they could if they want to, to try to get in touch with and honor and understand the beauty of who they are so that they can discern who I am and who I am not, what my values are and what they're not. And so that's a big part of what happens in the group in that module. So after the creative arts activity, we close each group with a sharing. What's happened for you today? How could we support you? And especially, what can you do this week to remember what you learned and applied it? So you're free and you're not being dragged around by your trauma brain. You're being led by a true and healthy and authentic self which is very hard to do in a world and a culture that despises uniqueness and demands people to be cogs in a system that's not chaotic.
0: Wow, that's neat. I can hear Carl Rogers in your voice just about the empathy and everything, and I can see how it would develop resiliency in the people because of all the empowering courage and the coping skills that you give them through all that. Let me ask you this. When the listeners hear all this description of the parts of the group and all, who can run a CAPG group? Are there specific qualifications you have to have?
1: Thank you for asking that because I often present at conferences and then people do come up and they want to run the group. And I'm delighted about that. And they want to have the manual, which I do give out for free, and I'm happy to, but what I do ask them, I give them my email, and I let them know at that time that if they're willing to come under supervision as they run the group for the first time, if they're licensed, if they have experience in trauma treatment, then I would be happy to supervise them. The reason why we just don't give out the manual is that it's dangerous for people who don't have training, and it's unethical if you look at our competencies in the counseling field, at least, whether they're from the ACA ethics codes or even what we consider the organization that watchdogs over our field and the training of counselors, K-crep, it's called. We have to make sure that when we share interventions that we are making sure the people who use them are trained well. All that to say, because the role of the leader is so active and directive and protective, it is crucial to have the appropriate training and credentials. And so to ensure best practices, emerging leaders of this group undergo a comprehensive training and supervision with an advanced leader for the period of learning how to grow the group, to run the group, which usually occurs within the context of a group. So they might run the group with another leader and that kind of thing. If any of our listeners are interested, first of all, thank you for being interested. That delights me. But certainly people can reach out to me for more information.
0: Yes, we'll definitely include your email with the podcast information. That'll be good, and I know everyone will appreciate the possibility of getting that if they have the right kind of training and they can have the supervision. So you're definitely providing some wraparound services to make sure they deliver a real quality product. In the last few minutes, let me just ask you, you've been doing this for a few years now. What's some of the feedback you've gotten from participants in your CAPG groups?
1: Thank you for asking. We have, we've been collecting outcome data, which means what is the impact of this intervention on the participants? I personally am a lover of what's called qualitative research, which is relational, in-depth research that usually done with interviews and other ways of really connecting with participants. So we've done a lot of that, but we've also used what's called quantitative data, which are surveys and things like that. So we've been collecting data from participants since 2017 on CAPG, and the findings are quite exciting really for me anyway. I think I might have mentioned, in fact, that this year we manualized the treatment for eating disorders, which there's a lot of dissociative symptoms with those. And we just finished analyzing the data from an outcome study with participants. And it's just really amazing to hear their voices and to give them a platform to share their stories about what happened for them. And so both the quantitative and the qualitative data reveal that in particular, the group nature of the intervention has been extremely meaningful and has promoted recovery, mainly through the normalization process that happens when people come together and share their stories. It is extremely, extremely resiliency promoting. There's just a ton of research on that. So the second finding that we've had is the role of the leader. Participants reported that the fact that the leader keeps the group focused, the fact that the leader kind of is skilled at maybe not letting particular members kind of run away with the group. The leader stays in charge. They're courageous and they make sure that everyone in the group has a fair chance and that the leader is skilled at taking people through trauma treatment. So that's been a finding. And the last finding has been about the interventions themselves and particularly using art to regulate emotion. That has been some of the findings we've had.
0: That's great. I know the listeners will really appreciate hearing more about that. It's really neat, folks. I tell you, I wish everyone right now could have the manual in front of them like I do. It, yeah. It's so well laid out. It's all organized. It's user-friendly, I and mean, it's really all of those things. So, and That's our goal of this podcast is to deliver a product to the listeners where they can learn new skills, new theories, and this is certainly one of them here. Dr. Sausen, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. We really appreciate it. And I know there's probably a number of listeners who can benefit from this because you're not just tying this to social work or psychology or counseling. This could apply to all these people groups. So thank you so much. Any other thoughts I may have not asked you about yet?
1: I just really want to thank you, Dr. Knapp, for having a forum and a podcast like this where people like me can share what we're doing, connect with others who are interested in making a difference in the world, especially at a time like this where there's so much upheaval, there's so much isolation, and there's so much fear and shame. The last thing I want to say is thank you. Thank you for what you're doing, and thank you to the listeners who are tuning in. And I want to encourage you all to be brave, to stand up to what is wrong, and to make spaces for people to share their stories, to connect with you and others, and to learn to live in a world like this, being who they are and loving others not for what they should be but for who they are
0: i couldn't say it any better than that (laughs) that really sums it up well and i know the listeners will definitely resonate with that and how therapeutic that is so thank you so much for joining us today thank you listeners for joining us today as well we hope you enjoy the podcast and learn something new every time And we'll look forward to seeing you all in the next podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Mental Healthy. Please be sure to subscribe for more episodes and share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. You can find this podcast on all your favorite podcast platforms. We hope you join us next time for more on Mental Healthy.
1: Music for this podcast is licensed under Creative Commons by Excel Music Publishing at freemusicpublicdomain.com.